0: Hello and welcome to the Tell Her This podcast, a storytelling podcast from women, not self help or advice, just stories and perspective. If you're new here, which we all are because this is the very first episode, I recommend that you go back and listen to the trailer in episode zero. That will give you an idea of where we're going and where we've been. All right, let's get started. I'm your host rachelle rice and you're listening to the tell her this podcast
1: so my name is Maureen andari and my age is 38 I'll be 39 in April so I'm 38, coming up at 38 and a
0: half. My friend Maureen is generous and engaging, witty and direct. She's a music artist and a successful real estate agent and is married to a supportive partner and is the mother of two adorable twin girls. Her life is good and sweet. But like most of us, her journey to this point was winding and not without its own places of darkness and heartache.
1: Growing up, I lived, I felt very protected and very, I was an only child in a big house in Chevy Chase, D.C., and I had no idea what my dad did. I I told my, you know, which I know is probably for the best if you're six or seven. Right. <laughs> the The teacher was impressed that I said at the what it, we I drew in my picture. My dad just goes to plain work, and the teacher was like, mm, "He's a assistant U.S. attorney in the homicide division in D.C." Like, I also my mom worked at Arlington Cemetery at the visitor center. She had a company that like told you where your dead loved one was, something that's now obsolete because of the internet. Um, but I told her that my mom. Doug Graves at <laughs> Arlington Cemetery. Did, went to a lot of concerts, shows. My parents took me out to eat a lot. We tried a lot of different kind of food. It was great. I I can't, I can't. I look back and I'm just like
0: God. I had it so good, you know. Maureen's childhood was idyllic and fun, and her parents created a beautiful environment in which to grow up. But
1: and 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 I benefited a lot from parents that were. Kind of strict, honestly, because anytime I would drink, I would get caught. I mean, I would like drink or try drugs or something and I'd be grounded. I mean, it was just did not. My parents knew what was going on at all times. And so I never really drank or used it that growing up, you know, whereas, you know, and I don't blame other people's parents because everybody does the best they can. But I was fortunate because I know if I hadn't had all that oversight, I would have just I could have just i could have just gone
0: down that road off to high school, Maureen left home to pursue degrees in English literature, creative writing, and political science from n y u My
1: first year at college was great I mean I did well um I had cool internships i like I did. I had a great first year of college, and and I love New York City. And I, I I just couldn't believe how dynamic and just powerful that city is. You know, it was eye opening. I got a fake ID like my first week.
0: Soon after beginning her life in New York, a major life event, and then a national tragedy.
1: Problem I had was I broke up with my boyfriend. I had had a boyfriend that was really nice, and we had a really romantic relationship. A songwriter, a musician, very handsome guy. And we were dating the summer before college, and we decided to break up for college because why would you stay with your high school? I mean, we weren't even high school boyfriend and girlfriend. We were like summer before college boyfriend girlfriend. And 9-11 happened. Like, I lived in New York City And I watched the towers fall from my dorm. And that was like the second day of class. I remember I was supposed to go to my, I was very looking forward to this poetry workshop that I was in a seminar. with This guy, David Lehman, who's like pretty famous in the poetry world, which isn't saying much, by the way. Um, But anyway, I was supposed to go to the seminar and instead, class was canceled for a week and, you know, it was complete chaos and national trauma and it was insane. And the whole experience kind of put a damper at the beginning, like it pushed everybody back together. So I ended up getting back together with that boyfriend and it was a, it was kind of a challenging relationship and it was a little, I don't know. We were on and off again. It was very rocky, but I was super in love and it was a very authentic love. Definitely my first love, real love, I guess. Um, and the last time that we broke up, I just couldn't handle it. The first time I was okay, I did it. And I went out with other people and was having fun and drinking at that point was just enjoyable. It was like, it was a, it was very sex in the city, like Cosmos with an older man having fun, totally in control, everything good, you know, never got that drunk, one drink, two drinks, you know, didn't do drugs at all. Um, Good grades, you know, fun time in and out of this relationship, but mostly it was great, fine. Then I guess it was my second year, and the breakup was really bad, and I was devastated. And I didn't want to break up. And that was not acceptable to me because he did. And it was really bad. And I just couldn't I didn't want to accept life on life's terms. I didn't want to accept reality. And so I just, that's when I started drinking to excess. So, you know, what's so interesting is that alcoholism It's it's a physical addiction, but more so than anything else, it's a disease of perspective. And when you drink alcoholically, it's usually connected. I mean, sometimes it's not, but generally, it's usually connected to some emotion that you're having. It's like a self-medication.
0: Gradually, Maureen's relationship with alcohol began to shift.
1: You know, I went to a wedding with a friend the first week of school, the second year, and I mixed all a bunch of alcohol. That was the last time I ever did that. You know, wine, and then gin and tonic, and beer, and then, you know, I just did it all out of order, whatever it is, and horrible hangover. And from then on, it was just the same, you know, I just, I would go out, you know, looking for like love you know replacement and end up just drinking
0: a lot with friends or whatever against the backdrop of a slowly forming addiction problem maureen was having an academic and creative awakening in a city and school community that she loved
1: say my second year i had a gorgeous view of the new york skyline it was a view of um the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, stretched across my 14th floor window on Water Street in Fulton. And that was a little triggering, actually, because, it, you know, I lived a couple blocks from 9-11 and I moved in less than a year after. So it was a little scary. And leading up to the war in Iraq, there was code orange, code red, all this manipul- manipulative crap to try to make us think that we needed a war. That's when I started taking politics classes in, in in earnest because I was just engrossed in that. Well, what's happening? Why is this happening? What is this chaos? And the people, the, the pr- faculties, the faculty there, the visiting lecturers, those people, they really clarified a lot of things for me.
0: To be at the epicenter of post-9-11 national political news reporting was both thrilling and triggering for Maureen. On one hand, she got to witness and study the trend toward increasingly sensationalized news reporting, a media phenomena that was both interesting and infuriating to watch. On the other hand, her drinking was becoming more and more of a dependency. As an upperclassman, Maureen was in her stride, engaging with her writing community, organizing open mics, and becoming editor of NYU's literary magazine, The Minetta Review.
1: I loved that community. I loved the other kids who were involved with the literary magazine. They were just nerds. And we were just like, would debate over poems and just like scream at each other because we cared so much about, we would analyze every submission every week. Oh, this poem sucks because this, or this poem's amazing. People would fight and then we'd all vote. And there could be a poem you thought was incredible that everyone else thought was lame. I'd like to think that the magazine held a little more clout than your average university literary magazine because it was at NYU. So we would print these things in Chinatown at a press, and then we would be putting them in coffee shops, like in the village, you know? I was like, that's pretty cool.
0: As editor, during her senior year, Maureen decided that each magazine issue should have a theme. Her first edition, The Bar Issue.
1: My first issue was called The Bar Issue. And I wrote this editor's note about – and it was really nicely written, but it was about how bars are so important to literary culture because drinking shifts your perspective. And peop- and there's a great literary tradition of, like, whatever, like, who's that alcoholic guy with the six-toed cats? Being an alcoholic is just – it's not – it doesn't define your life. It just it's – a, it's a baseline, It's, it's, it's there underneath everything, but I still had a great college experience that I absorbed a lot from and I loved my school. And I, I loved, it was a great place for me. When you're that young, I'm 20, 21, you can get, you can, you have a lot of physical stamina. I shudder to think what it would look like for me to relapse right now. I have 14 years of sobriety now And I'm like, I'm almost 40, so I'm like, I don't, I couldn't be functioning. I mean, I I can't function if I don't have enough sleep, you know, let alone if I was hungover.
0: You know, this is a view of addiction that I don't think we ever really deal with because it doesn't have the typical rock bottom, I've lost everything narrative. Here's this young, seemingly successful and well-adjusted woman who regularly drinks too much, whose personality and ability is gradually being overshadowed and sometimes defined even by her addiction.
1: It's like my life was bigger than the alcoholism, but the alcoholism was like a vein that occasionally would define it, you know? And I think I gave it a little too much credit the alcoholism like I was like like, I didn't give myself enough credit you know and my psychiatrist and stuff um you know at the time was trying to get me to quit smoking weed because he said it's not good for your mental health I was like bipolar diagnosed at this time and he was like you know you'll find that you're more creative and productive if you're not using drugs or drinking and I was like that can't be you know like you know, I just couldn't believe it. But I think that at, at its heart, when an artist thinks that their creativity comes from drugs and alcohol, there's, it's because they're insecure and they can't stand in their own truth and power. Sometimes, you know, when you're in recovery, you, te- you tell your story a lot and it's always focused on the using and the destruction and why you had to stop, why it was so such a blessing and such a gift to become sober and that's great and that's constructive and that's useful and it helps other people get sober because once you get to a point where you need to quit you're in a really dark place but that kind of storytelling doesn't leave room for the nuanced reality that life was still really good I was still very privileged very blessed I was in a great place and That both things are true. I needed help. I was sick, but I was also doing well and in a great place.
0: If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health National Hotline at 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-HELP. After school and while in recovery, Maureen moved back to her hometown to continue her work as a professional music artist. And with that came the dating scene. I'm used to dating professional musicians. That's like, I
1: dated professional musicians nearly exclusively by choice and by circumstance. That's who I was attracted to, but that's also who I was meeting because I was a professional musician only for 10 years. I was in therapy and I kept dating all these front, I always wanted front men, Rochelle. I mean, I wasn't dating the drummer. I wasn't dating the (laughs) bass player. I was dating lead singer, songwriter, band leader, just hotness, man, just the fire, Mm. at least three or four. I mean, like, it was a problem.
0: Through her recovery network, Maureen met someone who would eventually become her spouse.
1: We met through friends that are in recovery. I'm in recovery, and that's how we met. And I thought he was really great. But I was in a relationship at the time. And so I tried to set him up with my roommate and friend. (laughs) And thankfully, that guy I was seeing broke up with me, thank God. Rejection is God's protection. I was able to pursue Matt a little and make it clear that I liked him. And fortunately, he liked me back and... So we started dating, I guess, I don't know, eight months. First, I just didn't know if he even liked me. I mean, I was just like, couldn't read him because he's an introvert. And I'm used to these wild, extroverted men who are full of platitudes. And that's just not my husband, you know? (laughs) There were times when I thought when we were dating that I was bored. And the reality was, I was content. You know, I didn't have a drama filled relationship that like, I was used to this wild, artsy passion. And instead, I had a very solid partner who was showing up for me. And that seemed boring at first glance, but I was able to keep my out of whack instincts in check and, you know, just keep those thoughts to myself. And eventually, I figured out that revelation.
0: Maureen and her partner decided to get married. It was a grand and lovely affair, but with a strain of deep sadness because earlier that year, Maureen's father and biggest hero died from cancer.
1: I had an incredible wedding. Like, our wedding was spectacular. And I think that uh, we hired an amazing, like, New Orleans-style jazz... Party, early rhythm and blues, sort of amazing band called Izzy and the Catastrophics, and with like a brass section and electric guitar, and they were so great. And um, to see, I have this huge family, like tons of people. I mean, I think most of our wedding was family. It was just, we have just, and to see all of them dancing like crazy to this music I loved was like... And there was an ice cream cart and a carousel. And I changed out of my fancy dress into a fun dress. And I was very excited. That was a beautiful evening and one of the happiest, for sure. Because when you have a wedding, it's exciting because... You're celebrating the future. And so the possibilities feel limitless. And you feel supported, right? You know, you walk down the aisle, and even though my dad wasn't there, I went down the aisle with my mom. I just saw all these faces that loved me, you know? And I was in the church that I grew up in, and and my husband's incredible. I knew I was marrying... You know, a wonderful man. He had been there helping caretake for my father when he was sick and was with us the night he died. So there was a lot of, even though my dad wasn't there and that it put a damper on it, it's he, it still felt like he had died that year. And so it still felt like he was there. It's, it felt connected. I felt connected. We all felt connected to him. And he was mentioned a lot. You know, it wasn't about him, but he was honored. And um, it was a really amazing day.
0: Maureen's dad was a very successful attorney. He prosecuted white-collar criminals and the head of the CIA, and then he worked the homicide division in Washington, D.C., and prosecuted some of the city's biggest criminals. Her dad was a big deal but it was his intentional presence and love that made the greatest impact on Maureen. A
1: lot of memories. Uh, my dad was always around. I mean, he, he had a really amazing career, yet at the same time, I guess because he worked for the government or whatever, he was always home, you know, by 5.30. And he, was, he never worked on the weekends. And he was always present, um, and he even volunteered. He took a year off of work after a big trial and volunteered at my school as the school nurse or assistant. I remember he took me to fly a kite. I was seven, and we got we I don't know whether we took off school or what, but I just remember it was just me and him, and we went to get a kite and we went to go fly it, and the kite blew away. so we went back and got another kite. Because I wanted to. We did it again, and the kite flew away again. So we went and got another kite. <laughs> and we went back, and it worked this time. And we, it was so fun. But I just remember he was, like, in it with me. Like, he was like, do you want a kite? Like, we're going to get you a kite. It didn't work out. We're going to go get another one. He was very, He was just very reliable in that way. And he kind of had, like, a child's heart, you know, because he could play with me like that and he, he came to all of my shows and performances and he always just thought that Sarah and I that's my band Sarah we had a band we have a band he would come to all the gigs and afterwards just go oh my god that was the best that you've ever sounded and when you played this song it was that and he would compliment he would tell Sarah he would compliment Sarah he was just the sweetest man so he was just—he was just incredibly generous with his time and his energy.
0: It is all in our hands. It is
1: One of the the best moments for us, and something that I just hang on to. It's just something that I can hang my hat on, and this is this is why. You should always ask the questions that you want to ask, and you should always say what's on your mind to your loved ones. Because if I hadn't have said what I said, I would have never gotten this valuable information. I said, "I'm really sorry, Dad, that um, that I didn't, you know, have kids before you were sick." And he said, oh, that's fine. That's okay. I don't need anything more. You're enough. I don't need anything else. And I said, well, I said, you know, I'm sorry that I'm just a ukulele teacher. And all I do is, like, teach music and I just play some songs sometimes. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm... Pre- I'm not—I'm not like a rock star or anything, and I'm really sorry that all I do is teach music. And I said, I'm sorry that I'm not as successful as you, and that I don't have as much, you know, to show for my life. And he said, "Are you kidding me?" He said, "My whole life, I just made people sad. No one was happy to see me in my job. You make people happy." that's what you do with your music and so he said you're my greatest gift to the world and I just I couldn't believe it I mean I just it was just the greatest gift you know to hear that to hear that and for me to open up and share my insecurities and for him to just he just got rid of it he just wiped that all away in like one conversation you know
0: gratitude to Maureen for her time and her stories. The Tell Her This podcast was created and produced by Rochelle Rice with funding from the Next Look Artist Residency. For more Tell Her This content, please visit tellherthispodcast.com and follow on social media at Tell Her This Podcast. Please share this episode with a friend and leave a rating and a review. If you have a story to share and would like to be considered for an episode, please email us at tellherthispodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. This episode includes music from The Sweater Set and Maya Rogers. Editing by Ray Jala. And I'm your host, Rochelle Rice. And you can find me at Rochelle Rice Music across all social platforms. Until next time. Be true and be well on country streets thank god for the car